All right, if you will, turn in your Bibles with me to Malachi. Chapter 1 didn't get quite finished last week, so we're going to pick up where we left off, and maybe we can finish chapter 1 this week. Uh, we're going to go all the way through the book of Malachi, and it has four chapters, and you know me, I find a way to stretch them out. So uh, we're going we're gonna to pick up where we left off last week, and that was in verse 10, um, and see what the Lord would have for us uh, today. So if you would stand to your feet for the reading of God's Word. We're going to start in verse 10. Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations, and in every place incense will be offered to my name, and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you profane it when you say that the Lord's table is polluted, and its fruit, that is, its food, may be despised. But you say, what a weariness this is, and you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence or is lame or sick, and this you bring as, an, as your offering? Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord? Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. You may be seated. May God bless the reading and the hearing of his word. I want to pray before we get started and ask the Lord to bless the time that we have together, to bless my mouth and to bless your ears. Amen. Lord Jesus, we pray right now, God, that your Holy Spirit would set the tone and, and change the atmosphere. We pray, Lord Jesus, that the word of the living God would take root in our hearts and bring about changes that no one would be able to explain except by the power of the Holy Spirit. Lord God, there are so many men and women in here that I know that have had you change them in, in ways that are not explainable through anything else except the preaching of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. May we find the road to Jesus in this book of Malachi. May we find the Savior in every page. May we find his saving grace and his way of life to be that which captures our heart. We pray it in Christ's holy name. Amen. Well, just to run through uh, last week and to catch you up just a little bit, we talked last week, and the title of the sermon last week, and we're just going to finish it this week, is Where is my honor? Where is my fear? And that comes out of verse 6 where God says through the prophet Malachi, if fathers are to be honored and if masters are to be feared, then where is my honor and where is my fear? And every implication is, is that God is the Father, the Father, and that God is the Master, the Master. And that those who claim to be His children, those who claim to be His servants in His kingdom, should honor and fear Him. And the book of Malachi is built around seven rhetorical questions where God accuses the people that are supposedly His people of being a false, idolatrous people who move their mouths and say that they worship God. They come into the uh, temple, they come into the place of offering, and they offer sacrifices. But we find out that God knows the heart, that God knows the motives, and that God knows the situation and the specifics surrounding what they're bringing and why they're bringing it. And he asks these questions of them, uh, how is it that you can bring these things? How is it that you can desecrate? How is it that you can think that I'm honored when you're bringing these things and so on? And what he is saying here is that you are honoring me with your lips, but your heart is far from me. Last week we talked about verse 6 a little bit, and we talked about how God has always and will always demand complete allegiance. I'm not going to spend a lot of time, but just as by way of reminder. The same God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament. Many people think that the God of the Old Testament is, is in his teen years and that Jesus came on the scene as if God grew up and that he's not a mad, angry little man anymore, but that he is gracious now and that he's got a better temper. 
But what we understand is, is that Jesus Christ is the God of the Old Testament. That Jesus Christ is Yahweh. Jesus is the one that said, before Abraham was, I am. He said, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. That Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So we understand that the principles are the same. That God demands complete, complete allegiance, whether it's in the Old Testament whether it's in the New Testament, whether it's today, right now, is that God demands your complete obedience. We looked at a couple of verses in Matthew chapter 10 and Matthew chapter 15 that speaks of this idea that you say that you worship me, but in Matthew 15, 1 through 9, in that text of Scripture, he says, but their heart is far from me. We looked also at the idea that we bring God half-hearted sacrifices whether it be through our monies, our time, our dedication, our attendance in God's church service, uh, whatever it is, is that we have a hard time committing to God what is God's and giving everything else to man. We tend as Christians to struggle with this, and we often get locked in or caught in this, this cycle of events to where we just give God enough that we think we can shut him up. And I, you may not like the way that I say it, but let's don't dress it up and call it what it's not. When we half-heartedly worship God and we half-heartedly serve God, what we're doing is, is that we're saying, God, I know that you demand these things. I'm going to give you this much. I hope it's enough. Now shut up and leave me alone until next Sunday. Don't give away the allegiance that is owed to God. God demands what type of allegiance? God demands complete allegiance as the creator of the universe that you are the created and you will bow down and worship him. And I will too. And at the end of the day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. I met a man the other day and I asked him, I talked to him about the Bible and I talked to him about Christ. He said, I don't want none. Don't like it. Don't want it. Don't need it. I'll never. I said, you will. And I told him that as straight as I possibly could. He said, no, I won't. I said, yes, you will. You will bow down, voluntarily or involuntarily. Go ahead now while it doesn't hurt quite as bad as then. He didn't like that, but I told him he will not escape, for I will come after him. Through the gospel, of course. What type of allegiance? 1 Corinthians 10, 31, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Everything you do is to be done unto, unto the Lord. Uh, really cool uh, piece of history here that when Augustus had the ability to make a moral conquest of a nation, extending freedom to the annexed peoples, I won't read the whole thing, but we see that Augustus would make this pronouncement, that he would say salvation is to be found in, in no other save Augustus, Caesar. And there is no other name given to men in which they can be saved but that of Caesar Augustus. And we talked about how dedication and allegiance to the Lord Jesus Christ absolutely and necessarily means that you, you, you are contrary to anyone else that would exercise authority over you without having biblical precedent to do so. That anyone demanding that you call them Lord and that you bow down to their unbiblical, wicked, evil systems, schemes, ideas, or thoughts are to be absolutely set aside as unimportant and ignored. And that you are to pledge allegiance to Jesus Christ and you are to confess Him Lord even if that means they scream or yell off with His head. Better to be headless in Christ than have a head burning in an eternal flame that will never be put out. If that sounded familiar to you, it's because Jesus Christ, the, his disciples, take this phrase that was set forth by Caesar and change it absolutely putting their lives in harm's way and taking their lives and putting them in the hand of Christ. Acts 4, 11 through 12, I quote, 
This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the, co the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Caesar says, I am the only one that provides salvation. I am the only name that can save you. And the disciples say, no, no, no. There is salvation in no other than Christ. In sense saying, who are you? You are nothing. This is the confession. Which brings us to Malachi chapter 1 verse 10. In which, let's read again. It says, oh that there were one among you who would shut the doors. That you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts. And I will not accept an offering from your hand. Uh, this, so this reminds me of that saying that when someone is saying something that's just out there they say shut the front door right that came to mind the Lord actually says now is this not contrary to much of the modern preaching that you hear this prophet here is saying oh that someone would shut the door so they can't come in the church and act as if I'm God when their heart is far from me I'm sick of these games. I'm sick of you putting on a show. This is a stench in my nostrils. Keep your sacrifices. Keep all of your nonsense. You disgust me. You're going to hear that in your modern church? That's, uh, that, that is, uh, what do they call it, seeker friendly, right? It's like we got to get them in no matter the cost. Don't tell anybody they're sinful. Don't tell anybody they're going to hell. Don't tell anybody anything bad. Positive all the time. Woo. But the Bible here, you say, you say again, well, that's the Old Testament, Brandon. That's the Old Testament. You know, God was very angry then. He was trying his best, and they just kept turning from him. He's like, please, guys, please. And they just keep going wayward. He's like, well, please. And so, you know, we have this weak, angry, middle school, uh, adolescent God. Now, you see the... God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament. The God of the New Testament is the God of the Old Testament. And what he's saying here is, is that I would rather you not come and act as if you're worshiping me and blaspheme my name, pollute my altar, than to come in here and put on this silly, ridiculous show. Now, that might not be popular, but I think we need to hear it. So let's look and see uh, what the New Testament would have to say. And I would say that Jesus Christ knew how to shut it down. You know, that whole thing, and I know you've seen, you, you've seen this meme that says, uh, that say, you remember the whole the bracelets that used to go be everywhere, WWJD? And the whole idea was, and this come from this seeker-sensitive, you know, all his love, Movement, and I, you know, yeah, that's fine. Ask what would Jesus do and do it. But just understand what all's in the realm of what Jesus would do, right? So you ask the question, what would Jesus do? And, and the typical answer to that and what everybody wants to say is, well, Jesus was love. Jesus was kind. Jesus was caring. But they have, must not have read the parts where he interacted with the Pharisees, right? Or these other people. Okay, so John 2, 13 through 17. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money, uh, of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remember that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So that whole main thing goes, you know, don't forget when asking what would Jesus do, that flipping tables and making whips is in the realm of possibility. Why would Jesus do this, right? Isn't he this loving, caring God that doesn't want to offend anybody and just wants to bring them all in? <laughs> Well, honor and fear, honor and fear, honor and fear is that Jesus Christ is the God of the universe, that Jesus Christ is the God of the Old Testament, and he is the, the blemishless, 
perfect, sinless Son of God who came to be a witness, who came to be a sacrifice, who came to be the perfectly obedient Son of the living God who would show us, but not only show us, but to be the sacrifice that we would need in order to gain entrance into fellowship with God Almighty. In the entrance into fellowship with the Father. And so when Jesus sees these profaning actions, these desperate, disgusting actions of so-called followers of Yahweh, so-called followers of the one true God of the universe, it disgusted him. It made him, uh, it outraged him. It made him angry. And the Bible says that we can be angry and yet do not sin. That this was a, this was a, justified a righteous indignation that that Jesus was was seeing these poor pitiful excuses of sacrifices and this pitiful excuse of a of a of a temple gathering a service that was supposed to be a fragrant offering unto the Lord a service that was supposed to be dedicated to glorifying God and and glorifying Yahweh and here they are making money here they are pushing uh, these ideas and pushing these uh, material goods and, and selling these sheep and sell, doing business in the church. How many churches do we have in our country, in our world, that the one true purpose, the greatest purpose, is to make money? Now, I am not against a pastor taking a wage. I'm not against that. The Bible says that You shouldn't muzzle the ox as he treads out the grain and a worker is worthy of his wages. I'm not against that. Paul makes the argument that it is absolutely right, good, and fair that a pastor should be able to be taken care of by the work, the ministry that he's doing. He should be able to pay his bills. I don't think he should live in poverty. That he should be able to pay his bills. That he should be able to to take care of his family. But I'm not so sure about being able to buy a 16,000 square foot house just on your pastor's salary or making millions and millions and millions of dollars just off your church. Now, if you're a bivocational pastor and you've done well in the world and you've got money, then that's no, that's, what is that of concern? My problem is, is that when pastors are doing it for the money, and a lot of the times we can't see that, can we? A lot of the times we can't see the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So we have to pray that God would, because I believe that God can absolutely use a rich man. He can use a poor man. And one that is, a, I think that the city, the Bible bears it out in Proverbs and Psalms, that when God blesses a man who is faithful, then the city wants that man to be well off because he doesn't love money. He doesn't have to hold on to money, but he blesses. The Bible says that the city prospers when the faithful man is is blessed and when he prospers but it's not just about the money either it's not just about the money but it's about the purposes of their visit to the church to the temple it's about the motivations of their heart they didn't have zeal for God's house as Christ did what did Jesus say when they when he was a younger boy and they, he wandered off, and they couldn't find him, and they'd already started on their trek back, and they had to turn around and go back. They were looking for him frantically, I imagine. And they finally found him. Where did they find him? In the temple. What did he say he was doing there? They, they were, you know, they, they were so glad to find him. And what are you doing? And what did Jesus say? He acted like, you know, did you not, did, did you not know this is where I would be? What did Jesus say that the Father's house was to be? A house of prayer. My Father's house is a house of prayer. It is a place to where we pray, where we worship, where we glorify, where we honor the Father. It's not to be a place that we come to make money. It's not to be a place where we come to appease an angry God. Yes, that too. You see, I'm afraid that many people, especially in the Bible Belt, especially in the United States, but all over the world, they see church attendance, they see involvement in the things of God as a way to make payments for their right standing with God. But that's not at all what it's intended for. But it is purely for the worship, adoration, 
prayer and seeking out the glory of the Father in love to Him. You say, you seem to be adding that in here. I want to show you how I'm not. Let's continue on in the text of Scripture. The Bible is what we need, not my opinion. He says here, he says, Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. He's saying here that if you are not in if you are not in a right state of mind, if you are not in love with me, if you are not pursuing me, then I am not going to accept your sacrifice. I am not going to accept what you have brought in. I am not going to be pleased. I am not going to turn away from my wrath and from my anger because I have no pleasure in these things. Now, I want to take a moment to point out this fact, and we'll get into this a little bit deeper is that it is impossible for us by the own work of our hands and by the will of our flesh to bring a right offering before the Lord. You need to understand that. No flesh will glory in His presence. That it is impossible for me, it is impossible for you to bring an offering that is pleasing unto the Lord outside of the perfect propitiatory work of the Lord Jesus Christ who is the blemishless Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. There is not enough church attendance. There is not enough money. There is not enough hours. There's not enough tears to think that you could even begin to appease the wrath of God by any other way than the Lord Jesus Christ. Now I want to point out here it says, Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the, the doors that you might not kindle my fire, <coughs> kindle not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts. I will not accept an offering from your hand. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering. Now, there may be a little confusion here. And I don't have a ton of time. So I want to just, I, I want to mention this and I want to lay this out for you so that you'll understand the tie that, that, ties Jesus Christ as the blemishless Lamb of God to the Levitical ritualistic sacrifices that were made in the Old Testament and whether, because I just made the statement, now pay attention, I just made the statement that no human being on the face of the earth could have ever, can ever, even have the possibility of offering a pure sacrifice before the Lord. We know from Hebrews that bloods and bulls do not cleanse uh, sins away from man it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away the sins of man but we see in other places in the old testament if i had time we could run through them in leviticus and in numbers in several different places that there were sacrifices that were brought that was pl pleasing to the lord and this is pre uh death burial and resurrection of the lord jesus christ so how could they have offered pure and pleasing sacrifices unto the Lord pre-Jesus Christ. A lot of people have this question. A lot of people have the question, how are the Old Testament saints saved? If Jesus Christ is the one that lived the life we couldn't live, died the death we should have died, went into the grave, overcame death, hell, sin, and Satan, resurrected from the grave, and ascended on high, to secure for us salvation, that he would send the Holy Spirit back to seal us in and to make a reality in our lives. So the Father wills, Jesus Christ does the work, the Holy Spirit comes to seal us for the day of redemption by applying the blood sacrifice of Christ to our lives. That's imparted righteousness. We have no righteousness of our own. We get the righteousness of Jesus Christ imparted to us, imputed to us, that we might be righteous in God's eyes. How does that work for Old Testament saints? Well, Think of it this way. We, okay, so we understand that Abraham believed God, and it was what? Credited to him as righteousness. What did he believe? And what does it mean, credited as righteousness? Jesus Christ said, Abraham longed to see my day and was glad. Abraham had faith in God that he would provide the necessary sacrifice that would enable him to live the life and to be one with God 
his faith was credited as righteous. Does anybody remember at what point in the Old Testament it says that now I know you believe. Now I know you have faith. Anybody remember? When he was going to kill his son. I'm going to walk this out here in just a second. Here's my point. Old Testament, pre-cross and resurrection. Old Testament, New Testament. All salvation, pre-cross and post-cross, is through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and the work that would come and the work that did come. Does that make sense to you? Abraham was credited with righteousness because of the faith that he had. You are debited with righteousness because of the faith that you have. Post-cross, we have access to the Father through the Son by the work of the Spirit. Pre-cross is the same thing. Does that make sense? Okay, so side note, we can talk more about it later. The reason I want to say that is, is that in the Old Testament ritualistic sacrifices, even then it was impossible to bring a pure offering and a pure sacrifice unto the Lord and to make a right sacrifice in the temple without faith in the Messiah. Now, I don't, I'm going to spend all day on this, but Abraham, now he could have been made aware of Jesus' name in a dream. We're never told that in the Scripture. From all of our accounts, Abraham did not know the, the name Jesus. Okay, now there were prophecies uh, he will be called Emmanuel, uh, God with us, and so on and so forth. But what he had faith in was the Messiah. Jesus is the Messiah. What I'm telling you here is, and what I'm pointing out here, is that what we're seeing in Malachi, they could not bring an offering pleasing unto the, war because it, unto the Lord because it was impure, which implies that they didn't have faith in the coming Messiah. It wouldn't have mattered even, now I'm going to make this claim, that doesn't bear out in this text exactly. We could bear it out other places. But it's clear enough that I'll make this claim. Even if they would have brought the sheep that they said that they were going to bring, it would still have been an imperfect, impure sacrifice if they would have had no faith and they would have had impure motives. Does that make sense to you? Because it was heart matters. It was a position of the heart. Okay? Now, Let's, let's move to this next point. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to, yeah, okay, this is it, this is it, okay. My name, okay, so let's read verse 11. We'll start in verse 10, we're going to go to verse 11. Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors that you might not kindle the fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. Verse 11, now this is, going to be, this is going to be important to see from two different perspectives. One, what I was just talking to you about, about how we bring it, because this absolutely applies to you. You need to understand that. Oftentimes we read the Old Testament and we'll be like, well, that was for them. I don't got any sheep, right? I don't, I don't have, this is absolutely pertaining to you as well. All of God's word is applicable to every person in every season, okay? So this is, this absolutely has something to do with you. I'm going to show you that here in just a second, but to the point of Jesus Christ being the perfect sacrifice, this is how it will apply to you, and these principles that are spoken of here and apply here apply to you as well. Now let's read verse 11. It says here, For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations, and in every place incense will be offered to my name, and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord. Where did that come from? Does, that, does anybody else not read that and go, okay, he's talking to the Israelites. <clears throat> he's talking to the Israelites about Levitical uh, ritualistic laws and sacrifices and systems that they've gotten out of order. Their hearts all jacked up. They've, they're bringing polluted offerings. They're talking about bringing the best, and then they, they slip in the worst. They're, 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 offering, they're offering these things that... They would never offer to the world. He's saying they have more allegiance to the world than they do to me, to, to, to their God, right? And we saw last week how that absolutely pertains to us. Is that I wonder what would happen if we gave half as much allegiance to God, the church, the ministry, the work of the Lord as we did to our jobs or as we did to our children, as we did to fill in the blank. What if you put as much passion, pursuit, 
vigor and fire into learning and, and, and memorizing and, and contemplating God's word as you do, say, your, your engine, for those of you who like to work on cars, your video games, for those of you who like to play video games, your uh, football, your baseball, Titus, you, you know, what if you put as much effort into God's word and the church as you do into baseball or football? What if I did it as much time as I put into watching YouTube videos on different climbing techniques when I climb trees? What if, what if Keith, what if you spent as much time reading and studying God's word? Never mind. <laughs> so what if, what if we put as much effort into the things of God, the things that matter as we did into the things that fill in the blank. Right? Okay, so I, I didn't have that time to spare. I just come out, I'm sorry. I just, I love you. Amen, brother. All right. So we already talked about that. And here, he's saying, here he's like, all of a sudden it just busts out. He's like, all of you have issues, right? That's what the word is. Up to this point, it's like, all of you are bringing jacked up sacrifices. What is wrong with you? And then he says, the nations out there will glorify me. What? What? I thought, hold on, God, we're over here. We're, what, you're talking about us. You were, you were correcting us. Now you're talking about the nations. What's the driving principle here? So, it's, 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 it seems random, but it's so clear. God will become famous among the nations when he's captivated the heart of his people. God will become famous in the nations when he captivates and becomes the object of desire of his people. Leonard Ravenhill, I was listening to a sermon uh, by him, and he says, he says, the world doesn't need more of God. He says, the church needs more of God. He says, if the church had more of God, then the world would not be able to escape the massive presence of God. How can we go out there and captivate them with a Christ and a gospel that hasn't captivated us? It'd be like trying to sell something that you can't stand to use yourself. Right? And, and on the other hand, you, you know, you might... You might have a job as a salesman, and it's your living to sell a vacuum cleaner that, that you don't even use because it's terrible. I'd say it sucks, but it doesn't suck. <laughs> Sorry, baby. But you don't even own that vacuum cleaner because it's terrible, right? But you go out, and you, you learn your pamphlet, and you, you, you know all the things, and whoo, you need to buy this thing, Right? How long have you had yours? Uh, a long time, you know, in the closet. But on the other hand, and this is what we often do, right? We get them into the church and we, 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 we push them and we give them, we give them uh, rules and regulations and we give them pamphlets and we give them this and we give you that and we, we do all these things. And, and we, you know, you're, you're drawn in by all this stuff. But, but it's not Christ captivating your heart and so... It's just like, ah, yeah, that's pretty cool, you know, whatever. But you go to that restaurant where they've got the best steak you've ever, you've ever put in your mouth. Man, it's good. You go to that, that place that's got the best singer, right, concert. He's the best, you know, go to a concert, and the guy's just got the best performance. You know, whatever. You, you, you spend money, buy a vacuum cleaner, and it's the best sucker-upper that's ever been made. She says, Ty Dyson? Dyson, okay. I think we got one of those. And you know what? You paid money to go see the show, to go eat the steak, to buy the vacuum cleaner. 
And you, without compulsion, go and you start telling everybody you know. Put it on Facebook. Telling everybody, you got to try this restaurant. you got to try this out. Are they paying you to say this to me? No, I'm telling you. you got to go try it out. Why? Because it's awesome. I've said this for years. The Romans Road, the tracks, that's great. That's fine. You want to, that's perfect. But I'm telling you that those methods pale in comparison to, to sharing the gospel with someone and then being ravaged by the glory of the Lord. Them being, them being changed in the twinkling of an eye. For them being set free from the, the chains that bind them and the sin that weighs them down. That's why new believers, when they come into the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, you ain't got to teach them an evangelism method. You, you, you don't have to show them a method. You don't, you don't have to do any of that. You just say, all right, go get them, boy. Woo! Right? And they're out the door, and they're telling you, you got to come see Jesus. you got to come see Jesus. You won't believe what Jesus Christ did in my life. You won't believe the power, the joy. You won't believe. I was, I was caught up in addiction for, for 15 years. I was looking at porn. I was smoking crack. I was drunk. I, was, I abused my wife. I beat my husband. I did all these things. And when Christ came into my life, man, he set me free. You gotta come see. Come taste and see that the Lord is good, right? Let me ask you, children of God, have you lost the flavor of the Lord? Have you lost the flavor of the Lord? Have you forgot what it tastes like to enjoy the delicacies of the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, here in the text it says, it says, uh, from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations and in every place incense, which in the Old Testament is almost all, always prayers. Incense will be offered to my name and, pure, and a pure offering. For not, my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord. When God will be made famous in the nations, when his people is captivated by his presence. How does that work? We talked about it a little. Jesus is the only one that has ever pleased the Lord. You might say, hold on a second. Wait. I've pleased the Lord before. Let me say unto you today. If, that pleasing, if you think that that pleasing of the Lord was outside of Jesus Christ, then you're fooling yourself. You're an idolater and you're a blasphemer. No flesh will glory in his presence. It is through the shed blood of Jesus Christ that you bring any type of offering that is pleasing unto the Lord. Through Christ and Christ alone. Check out the scripture. 2 Corinthians 2, 14 through 17 says this. But thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere for we are the aroma of Christ you hear that isn't that a beautiful picture that we are the aroma of Christ some of you just have aroma for we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing to one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. Now, I want to point out, I don't have a lot of time to spend right here, but I want to point out one thing. Over and over in the Old Testament, you have this thing that God says about these, uh, these awful sacrifices made by supposed people of God. And what does he say? He says, I wish you would stop doing that. For when you burn this stuff, it is a stench in my nose. You, you've, you, have y'all read that before? Raise your hand if you've read that. Everybody else start reading your Bible. It's a, it's a stench in my nose. This is what God says. It's a stench in my nostrils. It's a stench in my nose. That when you come with these lame offerings that we would say with the progressive revelation that we have in Christ Jesus... That all of those offerings offered outside of faith in the Messiah, faith in Christ, the, the, the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, who would be the one last 
offering once for all offered up for the sins of men. Any offering offered outside of faith in Christ and through his sacrifice is a stench in the nose of God. And I would even say that we could say that it is the fragrance to one a fragrance from death to death to the other a fragrance from life to life that offerings made outside of Christ in God's nose is the stench of death. Right? When we do what we want to do the way that we want to do it and think that we're pleasing God or think God's cool with it, then all we're doing is lighting up some type of offering that we think smells good, but God's turning his nose up at it because it smells like death, which is exactly what happened in the garden. But to others, it says, is a fragrance to the other, a fragrance from life to life. There's, there's incense and offerings that one of them is a stench in the nose of God and he can't bear it anymore. But, to, but the other offering, when it's lit, I can just picture, and God, God is the one who describes himself in anthropomorphic language or human language that we can understand. I can just, in my mind, picture God going, that's good. There's all type of, of aroma sacrifices and offerings in the Bible of prayers, dedication, righteous life, holy living. My point here is that outside of Christ, it's all a stench in the nose of God. It's all a putrid, vain offering of a blasphemous sacrifice in the nose of God. When Jesus Christ isn't in the direct center of it. Well, how do we know? Isn't that a good practical question? Are you seeing how the same, the same principles that's found here in Malachi absolutely affect us? What is your heart? Do you have faith? Do you love Jesus? Are you excited to worship God? Are you about him? Is he a priority in your life? These are very practical implications coming out of Malachi that absolutely directly apply to us. Couldn't, couldn't Malachi have just as easily come in and, and I would have sit down in Malachi's presence and he could have come up here and he could have said, what offering are you bringing unto the Lord today? Present that to your governor. Would he be pleased? And you're presenting this to me and he wouldn't even be pleased, but you think I should be pleased? Could he not just come in and say that same thing? To, he could say it to me. Hey, don't get the wrong idea. I'm not standing up here with some cape on. Hey, Brandon Poirier is, is just, I, I, I need this too. If you think I'm preaching up here for my own righteousness, man, you're crazy. i got to go somewhere else because I've, you've misunderstood me. Even the preaching of God's word has to be done in the righteousness of Christ because I'm, I'm nothing but a wicked sinner. I have no righteousness of my own. I have to die daily, just like you. So I can come and sit down, and Malachi can come up here, and he can say these things to us, and, and what should be the response? Our hearts should just break. And then be put back together through the hope and love and mercy that is in the actual pure offering of the God-man the Son of the living God, Jesus Christ, in whom is every boast that we have. We do not boast except in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, I could go on right here, but I think it's plain enough that every offering brought apart from the Lord Jesus Christ and anchored in faith in the Lord Jesus Christ is putrid and disgusting in the nostrils of God. And we need to ask the question, Okay, that, was, that hit hard, Pastor, that hit hard. So how do I know if I'm bringing, what do, how do I know, what am I doing? Well, let's look here. There's some evidence that's found here. Let's look at verse 12. And we need to get through 14. So I'm just going to read them and then I'm just going to preach. But you profane it when you say that the Lord's table is polluted and its fruit, that is, its food may be despised. But you say, listen, but you say, what a weariness this is. And you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence or is lame or sick, and this you bring 
as your offering. Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord? Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am, he says this again, for I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. Man, there's so much here. I, I don't have time to get to it all, but a couple of key points. Every offering that's offered outside of Jesus Christ is putrid, disgusting, stench in the nose of God, okay? And every offering that is in Christ is a blessed, aroma, fragrant aroma to the Lord. Now, the key, we did talk about 2 Corinthians 2, 14 through 6, uh, 17. And what that says there is, as we preach Christ crucified, as we proclaim the gospel, what we say will also be a fragrance of death to death or a fragrance from life to life. Meaning that as you proclaim the gospel, not everyone's going to be saved. <clears throat> Some people are going to hear the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. They're going to turn their nose up at it, and it's going to be a disgusting idea to them because they know what God is calling them to do, and that is to surrender their supposed sovereignty and bow down on their face to the Lord Jesus Christ, and they are their own God, so they refuse. Those are the ones that they will be made to bow down one day, and it will not be pretty. But others, when they hear the gospel proclaim that King Jesus is king and the creator of the world, they will fall down on their face and they will worship and it will be a fragrance of life to life for them, okay? Now, as this happens, this, this notion of the nations, the nations, the nations keeps coming up. And what's meant, in, in my view here, what's meant by this is that as the true people of God are revealed by the preaching of God's word and they fall down and worship him and they are a fragrant aroma to the Lord and they start proclaiming the word of the living God, then the distinction between God's people and the rest of the world will become more stark and more stark. So the evil becomes more evil and more plainly recognized, but the righteous in Christ will become more recognizable as righteous and holy. And what happens is, is that the, the world plainly sees and distinguishes who are the people of God from those who are not the people of God. Now, it may not be evident right away. And it may be that the name of the Lord is spurned for quite some time. But it will always be the case that God's faithfulness, His truthfulness, and His love for His people will cause the wicked nations to stand in fear and awe of the might of Yahweh, always, whether that's at the end or whether that's now, here and now. And I'm here to say, and your eschatology will have something to do with this, but I'm here to tell you that I believe that the kingdom of God is more powerful than we give it credit for. The gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is more powerful than we give it credit for. And as, as you are, whether persecuted or blessed, either way, the presence of God will be evidenced in how you do life under the pressure or on the mountain. I will praise you on the mountain. That's it. When you praise on the mountain and you scorn in the valley, you are no help. For the discipleship of the nations. The church is built on the back of the martyrs. Anybody can praise them on the mountain. It's when you praise them in the valleys. That the world looks back and says. Huh. There's something going on over there. I wish I had about another three hours. I was reading Daniel this morning. Chapters 3, 4, 5, and 6. And you should see. If, you don't, if you're not familiar with that, man, you should go and read. What happened to Nebuchadnezzar? What happened to Belshazzar, Nebuchadnezzar's son, with the handwriting on the wall? And Nebuchadnezzar being made to eat? He was the most powerful man in the world at that time. And God got upset because he, he said, look at what I've done. And God's like, what you done? And so he put him out in the field and he was eating that like a cow on all fours. And uh, then he woke up and he praised God. Through the mighty work of God in his people, the nations will take notice. And you want to take back this country? It's not very complicated. You live out a holy life in the Lord Jesus Christ, preaching and proclaiming the gospel to anyone who will hear, and you never compromise who God is and what the Bible says, no matter what anybody else says. I've got to move on. Malachi chapter 1, verse 13. Okay, here's the evidence. 
practicality. They say, but you, or God, uh, Malachi says, but you say, what a weariness this is, and you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence or is lame and sick, and, and this you bring as your offering? Shall I accept that from your hand? Okay. Again, is the whole point that they're not bringing God the very best lamb? Part of the point. But them bringing a blemished lame sick blind lamb or sheep or ox is only a symptom of the greater problem it is only a symptom of the greater problem you see if you hear me preaching that you need to bring better sheep you're not hearing me preach or at least i'm not doing a good job they could have brought the best sheep that they had and if it still had the same heart no good. If you hear me saying, you need to make sure you bring good sheep, what kind of farming techniques do you got? What kind of shepherding techniques do you have? You got you to do better than that. Right? You got to do better. It's not about the sheep that you bring outside of the sheep that you bring is the evidence of the heart that you have. We touched on this a little bit last week. But I want to show you how this applies to us today too. We may not bring sheep, but we bring bunches of stuff. And just an overall propensity or the overall way that we interact with God. Whether or not we obey His commandments. Whether or not we live in tune with God. Whether or not we walk by the power of the Holy Spirit. Not following a bunch of rules and regulations set forth by men. Not following a bunch of rules and regulations, even as they're written in the Scriptures, because we have to. we got to do all this stuff. Man, this is tough. But that we do it out of the joy that is in our hearts because He has, again, captured our hearts. Look at 1 John chapter 5, 1 through 5, and see how it correlates. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. By this we know that we have loved, by this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey His commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments. Watch this. And His commandments are not burdensome. Ooh. Jesus is always doing this. The New Testament authors are always doing this. They'll set forth a law. They'll set forth a standard. They'll set forth a, a parameter that could possibly be met in the flesh depending on how your mind is. I would say it, it can. I mean, even then. But possibly. But it's impossibly met in the heart. No flesh will glory in His presence. Remember what He told a rich young ruler? Come up to him and says, Jesus, what must I do to be saved? That's easy, bro. Keep all the commandments. The rich guy's like, all right. I've kept all these since I was young. Jesus is like, uh-huh. Now you tell me, you really believe the rich young ruler that he kept them all? Let's, let's grant that he did. Probably not. Let's say he did. What does Jesus do? He takes the word of God and he rams it into his heart. He says, oh, great. The, the boy says, I've done all this. And Jesus says, oh, cool. One thing you still need to do. Go and sell everything that you've got. Give it to the poor. Come follow me. And the rich one will say, what? Hold up. What? Right? So let's say that the rich young ruler had just lived an amazingly righteous life. Right? Let's say he had. Well, Jesus should have just said, well, come on in, feller. But Jesus is like, okay, so you may have the fleshly aspect down. Maybe. Although Jesus, knowing the thoughts, looks at him and says, hmm. Okay, you got all this outside stuff right. Paraphrasing here. How's your heart, bro? Okay, I'll tell you what. 
Go sell everything that you love. You know, like slay your, your God and come and follow me because I'm God. And the guy's like, whoa, no. And it says, he went away sad. And Jesus was sad. What was Jesus doing? He was showing that it's not about the outward work of the hands, but it's about the inward motivations of the heart. It's about faith. He's always doing this. It's the same thing in 1 John chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. He said it's not enough to obey. It's not enough to just obey. You can come in here all day long and you can be at every single service, whether Wednesday night, Sunday morning, Wednesday night prayer service, Sunday morning, the thing at the park today, you can give your money, you know, you can give, man, I'm going to give 12% this week, right? You can do all of that and still bust hell wide open. And hell's hot and forever is a long time. But you cannot have a dollar of your own name. Walk in here, grimy, you know, no hope in the world, so you thought, except the Sacrifice of King Jesus, and your offering will never be rejected. It's not about the outward appearance. It's about Jesus Christ and the gospel. Well, weariness and obedience is evidence of a false conversion. Look, I, I, you know, I deal with this in my own life. I'm always testing myself. I'm always trying to ask a question. You know, when I, when I get up on Sunday mornings, like some of y'all can lay out. I can't lay out, right? Like, i got to be here, right? And I try to test my heart. I try to check my heart. I'm like, Brandon, do you got to be there today or do you get to be there today? It's a good question. And it really actually does matter. Do you have to be there today? Do you have to go to prayer group on Wednesday night at 930? Sometimes I feel like I have to. And in other times when my heart's right, I feel like I get to. Right? We always have to be continually checking our heart. Paul says that uh, that we need to... Um, that we need to check ourselves, examine ourselves to see whether or not we'd be in the faith. Well, what's one of the evidences that you're in the faith? That you love doing the things of God. It's not a burden to you. And some of you, you know, some of us may be like, well, it's not a burden to me not to kill people, you know, the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, you know. I don't, I don't mind not killing people. That's fine. But what about forgiving your, forgiving your enemies? What about not having hate in your heart. Remember how Jesus always is doing that to us? He's not taking it from the outward to the inward, right? Do not forsake the gathering together. You know, love your brothers. This is how you know that you have love for me if you love your brothers. You are to love them as you have loved me. And sometimes it's like you got to make yourself do it. Well, I think that we should command our hearts sometimes. But I think we should always be pleading with the Lord to test our heart and to show us where we're failing and to give us a pure and upright spirit, to not withhold his Holy Spirit and to renew the joy of our salvation as David prayed. Last one, my name will be feared among the nation. So he says in the first time, he says in verse 11, my name will be great among the nations. And then he says in the last one, my name will be feared among the nations. I don't think there's any accidents in God's word. So I believe that we can see that his name will be great in, in the nations by the fact that he takes care of his people, he's faithful to his people, and that his people have no fear of the pending doom that they are threatened with if they do not bow the knee to Caesar. There can be a lot to be said about courage in the face of impending doom. Now, I've been in a lot of fights in my life, okay? And that's not a good thing. I'm embarrassed of it. But what I do know is this. Whether it was me on one end or somebody else on the other end, I'll tell you one of the things that will worry you the most is when you're about to fight a man and he's not afraid. And I've watched other guys fight, and I can almost always tell you which one I think is going to win by the fear. Now, fear sometimes can make a man crazy, and he will kill you, right? Don't ever back somebody in a corner. But my point is this. When the people of God understand the Messiah God 
and his work and they live as if it's actually true and they have no fear of a government they have no fear of a boss they have no fear of anything the nations take notice and they begin to fear why do you think the government wants to set down all the actual Bible-believing, conservative, biblically worldview-driven churches? Because they say, thing like, they say things like, Jesus is Lord. No Lord but Jesus. They say things like, the Bible is the infallible, inerrant word of God, the sole rule of faith. You know what that does to a government? It sets them in fear. Because if that man right there and that woman right there and that man and that woman and that woman and these children are being taught that you never bow the knee to Caesar. You always stand up for the Lord Jesus Christ. You never compromise the word of the living God. Then what you are doing, just like Jesus, you are turning every table over. You are saying that we refuse to bow the knee. The nations will take notice. And not only in a fearful way in that sense, but oftentimes in a fearful way that causes them to fall down on their face. I, I won't go to the text, but um, that's what I was telling you about earlier in, in Daniel. Um, when, when Daniel became exalted to one of the highest positions, the other... Um, the other people who were working along with him, the sorcerers and all these type of people. See, he was put in this position because he had a powerful spirit of discernment, and it was the Holy Spirit, and that he was able to interpret dreams, and he was able to do things like that. Well, he was set over all of the other conjurers and, and fakes, right? And so they couldn't stand it. They hated him. So what they did was, this will show you how relevant it is to our, our time. I'm running out of time, so you guys can come on up and start. I'm, I'm winding down. So they, they said, they said this, they said, we'll never be able to overthrow Daniel and get him out of here unless we can find a way to do it using his commitment to his God. And so what did they do? They went to the king and they said, look, king, you don't want anybody else to worship you. You need to make a law that no one can worship or make petitions to any God for the next 30 days except you. So he's like, all right, sounds like a good idea. Not knowing what they were doing. So he writes it into law. Now I want you to show how one, ma one man's faith can change a nation. The laws, the political systems of a nation. They set that law up in order to trap Daniel. Trap works. Daniel goes into his room where the windows are wide open. He gets down on his knees, he bows down, he makes petitions to the Lord three times a day. They see it, they like, aha, we got him. They go to the king, they've trapped the king, they've made these man-made laws, right? And Daniel was more committed to his God and the word of God than he was to these man-made laws. And so he defied the government. And so the government comes in, and uh, you got all kind of corruptness in the government. I ain't never, you know, we don't, we don't know anything about that, but... Um, in that day, there was. And so they go in, these, these politicians, they go in and say, King, look, man, hey, you wrote the law. You wrote the law. Can't break the law. This is the law. You're going to have to do something with Daniel. And the edit was is that they would be thrown into the lion's den. Well, he didn't want to do it. He didn't want to do it because he liked Daniel. But still, the law was there. They had him. So they, he took him. He says, okay, go throw him into the, into the lion's den. He goes home, he couldn't eat, he fasted, he couldn't stop thinking about it, he couldn't sleep. And as soon as the next morning, uh, as soon as the sun came up the next morning, he takes off running to the lion's den and he shouts in. Oh, and by the way, just so you know, that uh, Daniel was thrown into the lion's den, which was underground, and a stone was rolled over and it was sealed with the signet of the, of the king. Sound familiar? <laughs> there was another man who would come, change everything by his time behind the rock too but anyway he said yells in he says daniel you good man has your god saved you and he told him before he sent him in he's like man i hope your god can save you send him in daniel you good did your god save you i'm all right the angel of the lord came shut the mouth of the lions he's like yes 
So he gets the stone away and he brings him out. And he said, Daniel's God has saved him. The one true and living God has saved him. The providence of a good God in Daniel's life has saved him. So you know what he does? He calls all those other people who had trapped him, who had caused him in a manipulative way to write this law. He's like, all of you jokers, all of y'all, your wives, your children, every one of you, throw them in the lion's den. And they did. You know what the Bible says? The, Bi the Bible says that the lions overtook them and crushed every bone before they hit the ground when they threw them in the pit. That's not the end of the story. You know what happened after that? The king rewrote the law, and he made an edict. And he said, from here on out, no one will worship any god but Daniel's god. For he is the living god who is able to save he is the living God who is able to rescue. One man, you say, I'm just one man. One man's obedience, unwavering obedience in the face of death. And it could have been that he could have died. Remember, there, there was another time when he said, I don't care. Even, even if it kills me, we'll not bow down. Who was that? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Hananiah, Michelle, and Azariah, their names were changed. They said, our God is able to save, but even if he won't, we'll never bow down the knee to you. And it was the same thing. They rewrote the laws in order to trap them. Out of one man's obedience, his unwavering, uncompromising obedience in the face of death, the whole nation was changed. What could you do, Heath Kelly? What could I do? What could my wife do? What could my son do? What could you do? By the demonstration of your faith, by the unwavering obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ and the keeping of his commandments out of a joyful heart. Well, Daniel's only a picture of the one who would come. Jesus is the greater Daniel. Jesus is the greater Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Jesus is the greater David. Jesus is the one who would descend into the grave. The stone would be rolled over. And by this one man, now, by Daniel, by that one man's obedience, a whole nation would change for a season because they would actually go back. But through Jesus Christ, unwavering, uncompromising obedience, the whole world would change. Through the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ, all the nations would be affected for all time. And one day, it'll all be made new. And you'll have to decide today which side of that you're going to be on. Are you going to be for him or are you going to be against him? I plead with you today, I urge you today to look to the Lord Jesus Christ who is the perfect sacrifice once for all. He is the only pure offering. He is the way, the truth, and the life. You will not see life outside of Christ. But through Christ, you'll live it every single day, starting at the moment you have faith. Let's all stand to our feet. Repent today. Pray. Seek God. Ask God how you, how he can make changes in your life. Ask God how you can be more faithful. Ask God to reveal to you the weak places. You know, there was a man that stand and said, God, I have faith. God, I believe. Help my unbelief. That's what I pray today. I've got my own weaknesses and failures. Let's lay them at the foot of the cross. Let's do what God's calling us to do. Love you guys. Mm -hmm.